Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, November 17th, 2021. This is KUAF, your public radio station for more than 35 years. We are a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Ahead today, reflecting on 10 years of Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. We have consistently had over 700,000 guests a year, every year. Right now, we have welcomed 5.6 million guests and counting. We'll spend a few minutes at the museum in our second half hour. In just a few minutes, Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich examines recent findings that deer can carry and transmit to each other COVID-19. We'll find out what that might mean for Arkansas. Olivia Walton will become the new chairperson of the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. The museum announced yesterday she'll replace Alice Walton, who is transitioning into the position of board member after holding the chairperson job since the museum's opening 10 years ago. The Arkansas Department of Health is reporting 814 new cases of COVID-19. That's the highest one-day total since October 9th. The ADH also reporting a more than 300-case net increase in active cases in the state in the most recent 24 hours, and 13 deaths from the virus have been added. Hospitalizations did drop yesterday by six patients. A new report shows Arkansas ranks as one of the worst states in the nation for new cases of lung cancer. The annual State of Lung Cancer report released by the American Lung Association yesterday shows Arkansas ranks 49th out of 50 states in the District of Columbia for new cases and sits below the national average for rates of survival. Zach Jump is National Senior Director of Epidemiology and Statistics for the American Lung Association. He says a number of factors can have an influence on state standing, when it comes to lung cancer. When we started this, this was the first time anyone had looked at this data, and we were surprised to see how big a difference there were on some of these metrics between states. And the, uh, the next question is, why? What led to it? That's where we look to communities and experts on what, what is hindering or aiding in your town, in your state, and what can we do, what's working that we can then recommend. Despite Arkansas ranking above average for early lung cancer diagnosis and access to treatment, the state fares poorly for survival rates and use of surgery to treat the disease. Jump says the state can also improve its rate of screening for the cancer, which can in turn improve health outcomes for those living with the disease. Screening for lung cancer is relatively new compared to other cancer screening modalities. And we know that for those at high risk and recommended um, annual Screening with low-dose CT can reduce uh, the lung cancer mortality rate by 20%, and it basically does this by helping you catch those those tumors early. Jump says lung cancer screening rates are still relatively low nationwide at about 6%. He says annual CT scans to screen for lung cancer are available even to people who have quit smoking. More information about the report can be found at lung.org slash SOLC. Dr. David Williams of Fayetteville is the recipient of the 2021 Tom Bruce Arkansas Health Impact Award. It's presented by the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. Dr. Williams served as president and CEO of Ozark Guidance Center, a nonprofit behavioral center, for 30 years before his retirement in 2008. He then went on to continue working in different capacities throughout Northwest Arkansas to improve psychiatric services and mental health services throughout the region. Talk Business and Politics reports nearly 67,000 pounds of medical marijuana have been sold in Arkansas since May of 2019. That's resulted in the state collecting just under $45 million in tax revenue from the sale of medical marijuana. Two of the top five dispensaries in sales are based in northwest Arkansas. The 15th-ranked Razorback men's basketball team is back in Bud Walton Arena tonight. The 2-0 Razorbacks host Northern Iowa, tip-off set for seven. And the 2021 National Philanthropy Day observance is taking place at this hour virtually again this year, as a nod to safety during the pandemic. The Northwest Arkansas chapter, the Association of Fundraising Professionals, again this year honoring several people and organizations for their philanthropic efforts throughout the Arkansas River Valley and Northwest Arkansas. And this year, the Special Judges Award is being given to KUAF. It's an honor we accept with deep gratitude from the Northwest Arkansas chapter of the AFP. Congratulations to the other recipients this year. You can find out much more about those recipients and about National Philanthropy Day, and about the Northwest Arkansas chapter of the AFP at their Facebook page.
This is Ozarks at Large. Wildlife scientists have discovered the presence of the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 in white-tailed deer across a half dozen states. New research shows white-tailed deer are biologically vulnerable to the COVID-19 virus, which apparently is spreading deer to deer. Although deer are abundant in Arkansas, none yet have been tested, so the rate of infection here remains unknown. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich recently spoke with a lead federal investigator, as well as two Arkansas wildlife experts, to bring us this story. As many as 30 million white-tailed deer freely roam, American forests and prairies, towns and cities, deer are popular creatures, intensely admired and fed by wildlife enthusiasts and widely hunted as a game species. But since a global pandemic was declared, white-tailed deer are showing signs of COVID-19. Thomas D. Liberto is Assistant Director at USDA Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, or APHIS, National Wildlife Research Center, headquartered in Fort Collins, Colorado. This goes back to um, a year ago summer when uh, a paper was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that identified certain species around the world of animals that had Um, receptors that were capable of binding to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. After the discovery that white-tailed deer angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptors have an affinity for SARS-CoV-2, USDA Agricultural Research Service scientists deployed an experiment infecting captive white-tailed deer held in biosafety containment. And they found that they could not only, uh, those deer could not only become infected with the virus, but they can subsequently shed it to other deer that were not infected, but maintained in the same room as the infected deer. What's referred to as a deer-to-deer transmission. Next, De Liberto and colleagues conducted sero-surveillance of deer blood contained in deer blood banks for various research purposes. And we, we went to those freezers, sampled the blood that we had, and we looked at blood from deer that was collected prior to the pandemic, and blood from deer that was collected during the pandemic. And when we looked at that, those samples, we found that we couldn't find any antibodies to the SARS-CoV-2 virus prior to the, to the pandemic. But during the pandemic, we started to see um, white-tailed deer, free-ranging white-tailed deer, exhibiting um, antibodies to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, indicating that they had been exposed to the virus. Blood samples were then collected by APHIS researchers January through March of this year from wild deer in Illinois, New York, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Antibodies were detected in 40% of samples. DiLiberto is among 13 scientists whose findings on SARS-CoV-2 and white-tailed deer were recently published through the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences after going through peer review. He's also a member of the APHIS American Rescue Plan Coordinating Group responsible for reviewing and approving projects. APHIS received more than $300 million this year to develop a plan to monitor and surveil susceptible animal species for SARS-CoV-2, part of a continuing effort to strengthen the nation's ability to detect and contain zoonotic disease outbreaks in animals. USDA APHIS is, um, has just um, developed an act. Uh, a specific plan and activity to expand what's been ongoing by the other stakeholders that um, at the state and university level to a broader uh, geographic area within the range of white-tailed deer to look at additional areas of where deer might be, be exposed and infected with SARS-CoV-2. Liberto says a growing number of universities and state natural resources agency research scientists are now investigating COVID-19 in white-tailed deer, most recently in Ohio and Iowa. Those studies are pending peer review, but are presently posted on BioArchive, an open-access preprint repository for the biological sciences. For the Iowa study, a Penn State University veterinarian research team analyzed lymph nodes from dead deer, either roadkill or hunted, finding rates of infection are rising over time, including COVID-19 variants, which are also circulating in humans. We don't really know at this point, to be honest with you, um, how deer are becoming exposed and infected, um, which is one of the uh, 
uh, priorities of of the USDA um, activity that I mentioned that we're going to be embarking upon here in the next couple of weeks is is to look at not only where deer are infected, um, but start to gain some knowledge about how they might be coming infected. And then once infected, are they able to transmit the virus among themselves? What I think I can say is that given that we found deer um, exposed in four states and subsequent work in Ohio and Iowa, it's likely that there's no one single route of exposure. It's probably happening different ways in different areas of the country. De Liberto says, however, unlike humans who can be gravely sickened and die from COVID-19 infection, deer appear to be unharmed by the virus. Um, there is no evidence that deer are currently um, being adversely affected um, uh, from by this infection. The experimental infection studies conducted by the USDA Agricultural Research Service um, and uh, an additional study conducted out of Kansas State University on captive white-tailed deer um, demonstrated that, um, that, uh, that, that there was very little signs of, of uh, clinical signs or illness in the deer when they were infected. And to date, um, there's been no um, reports of uh, wild deer um, exhibiting any clinical signs or mortality from infection, specifically due to SARS-CoV-2. Almost hunted to extinction in Arkansas at the turn of the 20th century, deer have more than rebounded, says Robert Byrd. He's state director of USDA Wildlife Services. They're not evenly distributed. You know, there's not deer plentiful all over the state. Some some counties have higher densities than others. You know, typically you're Northeastern Arkansas, the Delta would have your lowest density of white-tailed deer, and, and, and the most is typically the south-central portion of, of Arkansas. Deer are also plentiful on the Arkansas Ozarks, Carroll, Benton, Washington counties, including near urban centers like Fayetteville and Eureka Springs. But Bird says Arkansas deer have not yet been tested for COVID-19. As far as I know, there's currently no white-tailed deer surveillance for SARS-CoV-2 in Arkansas. We have had discussions uh, with our state partners at the at the state level to, to see if that's something we can pull off in time. Um, but currently, there, we're, as far as I know, there's no sampling currently. Still, with deer hunting season now open, Bird says care should be taken when harvesting animals. Yeah, I, don't, I think it's important to remember that there's currently no evidence that animals play a significant role in spreading SARS-CoV-2. Um, humans continue to be the major reservoir for the virus. Um, as far as hunters go, you know, there's, again, there's no evidence that you can catch COVID-19 from eating white-tailed deer, but we do still recommend, you know, good hygiene when you're processing a deer or handling a deer, you know, don't eat or drink while you're processing a deer, wear rubber gloves, clean your tools, your knives, utensils, uh, that kind of stuff. Just practice good hygiene. Jennifer Ballard is state wildlife veterinarian and assistant chief of research for Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, which is responsible for reintroducing healthy deer populations back to the state. She works closely with the deer management team, monitoring deer health and harvests. She's concerned about rising SARS-CoV-2 infection in white-tailed deer. Well, it does demonstrate, you know, that there's clearly a lot of disease exchange happening at what we refer to as the human-wildlife interface. And so where humans and these deer are interacting in some way, there is a spillover occurring. Uh, humans are still the primary reservoir for SARS-CoV-2 in the uh, North America. And so these deer are essentially becoming infected. She says early research indicates SARS-CoV-2 infection is short in duration in white-tailed deer, with no evidence of infection spilling over back to people. 
So there's still a lot of research that needs to be done. We don't know exactly how that transmission is occurring. We don't know if deer are potentially going to become a reservoir for this virus or if it will uh, essentially, you know, run its course and die out in uh, their populations. Of course, I mean, the virus dying out, not the deer themselves. Ballard says Arkansas Game and Fish Commission is not engaged in any SARS-CoV-2 surveillance at this time, but she warns Arkansans to avoid any contact with white-tailed deer, to not feed them, and take precautions when harvesting them to prevent further spread of infection among herds. COVID-19 infection has also been documented in zoo animals, a major outbreak in farmed mink, and among domestic pets. While Asian bat species are suspected to be the original hosts of SARS-CoV-2, North American bats remain mostly unaffected. That's according to a paper published in the Journal of the Society of Conservation Biology, which cites one exception. Bats handled during seasonal biological surveillance and tagging field work have tested positive. And although deer-to-deer transmission of SARS-CoV-2 is well-documented now, the incidence or possibility of cross-species transmission, as well as deer-to-human transmission, remains unknown. There's also concern that with increasing infection rates, white-tailed deer could incubate new COVID-19 variants. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Just a reminder, Thanksgiving is a week from tomorrow. We'd love to hear about some of your favorite Thanksgiving experiences or memories. It's easy to leave a message for us and your community by using the Connect button on the KUAF app for iPhone. Right now, one of our available topics, what are you thankful for? As we approach Thanksgiving, what is usually a simple question might look different this season. Let us know what you appreciate by simply downloading the KUAF app for iPhone at the App Store. Click the Connect button at the bottom of the screen. Set up your account. Doesn't take long. And then leave your message. You can listen to your message over and over, then re-record if you like, before you send it to us. You can also tell us what you're thankful for or give us a Thanksgiving message by calling our Connect line, the old-fashioned landline. That number, 575-6577. 575-6577. We'd love to hear from you. KUF Connect, your voice matters. Carl Schubert, professor of practice and associate director of the data science program at the U of A, spent 35 years working in industry before coming back to the University of Arkansas to help create the multidisciplinary data science program. In the latest edition of Short Talks from the Hill, he discusses the unusual path back to the university and his general desire to inspire innovation in students. I was viewed by the faculty as what I called non-denominational. That is that I wasn't in a department specifically, I was working for three deans, and so I didn't have any particular favoritism to any particular department or any particular college. Schubert also discusses creation of the Multidisciplinary Data Science Program and a National Science Foundation grant to support low-income students interested in studying innovation in science, technology, engineering, and math. You can listen through the on-air and programs link at KUAF.com or at arkansasresearch.uark.edu. Now, this may not be on your calendar, but today, Wednesday, November 17th, is Utility Scam Awareness Day. It's actually the sixth annual such day. It's an observance that was created by Utilities United Against Scams. Among those utilities who are united against scams, the Southwestern Electric Power Company, or SWEPCO, in a press release, they said the holidays is a time when many Utility customers, including senior citizens, low-income residents, and understaffed small businesses, are targeted by scammers. Scammers typically claim to be an employee of a utility, and they approach customers at home, by phone, or by email, and they may use one of these following techniques. Threaten to shut off your power unless you make an immediate payment. Tell you you need a new electric meter, but you have to make a payment before the new meter is installed. Offer a discount on the bill if they sign up for auto pay. Don't do that or demand that a deposit be paid immediately, insist a payment be made with a prepaid credit card, or ask to meet at another location to make a payment. Further, SWEPCO says that if you get an unexpected knock on the door from someone claiming to be with SWEPCO or a utility, be cautious. Those employees are to show their company ID, and then customers can verify the employee's status by calling a toll-free number. That number is 888-216-3523. 
Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. It's time for the annual KUAF and Friends Holiday Giveaway, your chance to win a gift from one of many generous KUAF underwriters. Participants include Park Lane Family Dental, Fossil Cove Brewing Company, Romance Diamond Company Jewelers, and more. Winners announced on Friday, December 10th, during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Details and registration available at KUAF.com. Good Wednesday. This is Ozarks at Large. On the latest episode of Undisciplined, the podcast produced in collaboration between the University of Arkansas Department of African and African American Studies, KUAF, and Ozarks at Large, host Dr. Karee Banton turns the tables on her former co-host, Warrington Sabri. Warrington is a native of Little Rock and a graduate of the University of Arkansas. He has a master's in political science. He's now a student at Howard University's School of Law. Dr. Batten asked Warrington why he chose the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville instead of a historically black college that was much closer to home. Yeah, I actually enjoy this opportunity. And I would say if there's you know, any you know, undergrads or prospective students that are considering coming to the university or thinking about some of you know, the schools within Arkansas, this is definitely the place to be. So turn it up because I think you might be able to relate whether directly or indirectly. But it was a very interesting process um, coming into undergrad. Um, I didn't, again, know what I wanted to study, and that was part of the reason probably that my, my parents, particularly my mom and my grandpa, were you know, kind of on me about where I wanted to go because I think they saw it as I'm just kind of doing this as a whim. And of course, they knew that I would figure it out. But for the amount of money that would be spent at a, on, a, on a college degree um, and, you know, the, the, the resources that I did not have in terms of funds, um, they were they were a bit concerned. And so you kind of growing up as a kid in, in, in Arkansas, you kind of just grow up with this affection towards the University of Arkansas. It's just kind of this thing where I think that all babies like come out and like they're calling the hog instead of the crying. They're just like, like, they, they, like this just happens in children's hospital. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, but we grow up and we see the, the Razorbacks, they come to Little Rock, you know, once a year, they come to Central Arkansas, they come to War Memorial Stadium. And uh, I grew up, you know, with some of my white friends who were able to afford the tickets uh, to be able to go with them to the football games and seeing, you know, the Razorback marching band and seeing them put the uniforms on and, seeing them playing for the state and of course Arkansas not having any professional sports teams or anything to really root for in general um <laughs> it was just kind of like I always dreamed of being able to go to University of Arkansas because it seemed like if there's anything that was going on in Arkansas it was that basically you know fast forward to whenever it was time to make the decision I had you know the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff like you said uh that you know wanted to offer me uh, a full ride basically and you know they were I was in the band. I auditioned for the band for both bands and I made both of them, but UAPB was seemed a little bit more financially stable. Um, and then U of A seemed a little bit more, you know, I was going to have to figure a lot of things out on my own. There were, there were questions that were going to be unanswered. I had scholarships, but I didn't really have everything covered and, and the, you know, living situations and, and whatnot was all, was all kind of in the air. And so you know, I, I still end up choosing, you know, the University of Arkansas, despite me not having a full ride and not despite me not having a plan, you know, again, of what I wanted to do once I got there. I just knew that I wanted to go to U of A because of the look, I guess, essentially. But I found so much more. But the interesting thing, I think, that that was a part of this process was I, I kind of defied my parents a little bit. They thought that they knew I was going to UAPB. Like they, they thought there was no question about it. Warrington's just going through this phase where he's just trying to, you know, rebel and and he's going to eventually come to the senses that we're going to be able to convince him that, you know, he'll, he'll be good at UAPB. And they tried a lot of things. They were like, oh, Warrington, you'll be able to maybe like buy a house or you, and you'll be able to do these things by going to UAPB. And, and those things may have been true. Um, but I, I had it in my mind that I wanted to go to, to to the University of Arkansas. I didn't know what I was going to do, but it ended up working out. And I say all that to say, you know, I think for a lot of kids out there that are that are especially growing up at the U of A, you know, there's a decision that we all kind of have to make. You know, going to the to the flagship institution, or, or maybe you know, not, not even just the University of Arkansas, Pomp Bluff. Um, there's like Arkansas Baptist, there's Philander Smith. These are all um, historically black colleges within the university or within you know the Arkansas system. Um, but it's just, you know, 
what exactly do you want to do? And so I chose my PWI and now we're here. So thank you for sharing that. So um, you made that decision and you chose the state's flagship university. And, you know, now that you're on the other side, what did what how did you find that decision? How was the experience of being a black at a historically white supremacist university? Well, I think that it was it is exactly what you would expect from a phrase like being black at a historically white <laughs> supremacist institution. Um, a lot of things that you that you see, or I guess the question being, what did, what did I find now that I'm on the other side? I found exactly what I what everybody told me that I was going to find. You know, the racism, the the isolation, the imposter syndrome, the invalidation. You know, all of those things were, were found. But what I also think that I found was myself um, in a lot of different ways. And so that sort of isolation and being sort of uh, pushed out and, and sort of forced to stand out, uh, you, you sort of, you know, learn a lot about yourself um, during those times. And so I think what drove the decision ultimately was, was sort of a, a dream that I sort of got sold on. At a particular time, you know, you come into the university and and really all you see is whiteness. So, I mean, and I mean that not to really sound like, oh, like there's just nothing but white people at the university, because that's obviously not the case. That, that would be too general. But what you see is when you come in, you see the main streets and they're lined with these houses and, and you're 18, 19 years old. You don't know what any Greek letters mean. You don't know what Kappa Sigma means. You don't know what you know, five, what do you know? You don't know what any of those things I mean. You just see these big houses. These big houses these that are great, on the main thoroughfare of the university. Exactly. Right across the street from the football stadium, right across the street from um, the school gym, right across the street from the cafeteria. Right across from and the first about, building on campus from Old Main. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Within seconds of these, of these spaces, very, very visible. And you hear, uh, you know, you watch movies and you hear a lot of things about these crazy college parties. And there's this image that is sold that if you, you know, get um, within, you know, the good graces of the, the white people, the white students that are in these, you know, organizations that, you know, you're going to have the best time of your life and you're going to be able to be with all the time, type, get different types of people and just have a great time to say, to keep it uh, tame, I guess. So that, that image is kind of sold to us. And then we get here and they're like, who do you know here? <laughs> they're like, they're like, you, you, you want to come in these doors? Nah, man. Nah, 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 nah. Either you pay a whole bunch of money and we still might not let you in or, or you, you keep it stepping. And so you're just kind of stuck. And so what I found, again, on the other side was that it's not as sweet as, as, as they made it seem. So the social and the kind of communal within those, uh, you know, fraternal organization is not as welcoming as you you thought they would be. No, no. And I mean, actually, you know, we could we could talk about this a little bit, too. But very briefly, I mean, I, I tried to join one of these fraternities and we can keep it unnamed and, and whatnot. But some people may know, some people may not. But I mean, there's a lot that you that goes on behind those doors that you would not know. Not You mean know, you you uh, joined a white fraternity? Yes, Dr. Van, I did. I did indeed. Um, no longer affiliated, I will say. No longer affiliated. However, yes, I did. I did. Ha- I was at one point in time a, a member of a white fraternity. Um, and, and let me let me also say, you know, like this is this is not some sort of vendetta that I have against this group of guys, because um, some of these guys are still, you know, good friends of mine, and they were going to be good friends of mine whether I was in the fraternity or not. But you know, this is this, you know, in general. I know since it goes on around people like me that were in these, you know, spaces, they definitely go on around in those spaces where there are no tokens, where where it's just white guys. So. This is nothing new, and, and people that would maybe listeners that are surprised to hear that like white people act racist around only white people. This is this is this is nothing new. Okay, that's the social side. So back to the academic side. What made you take your first African and African American studies course, then Warrington? You saw a meme on social media. What happened? <laughs> no, I think what it was honestly was I didn't know. First of all. You know, you come into to the university as a black student, you don't even know that we have African American studies. That's 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 one of the first issues. I probably would have started there, um, had I known there was an intro course. But I found, I think, I, I think it was that I found the course first, and then I was like, huh, I wonder 
you know, why nobody told me this this existed? You know, your advisor doesn't do a very good job at that. So anyways, I found the course and it was it was after the election. And, you know, I was just trying to learn a little bit. You know, I felt like I wanted to see what the university had to offer in terms of telling history. Because as a black kid, you growing up, you know, especially within the black church, you learn some aspects of history, but, you know, of our history, but not, you know, anything that you might want to, that you might remember, you know, as you, you know, get older. So I wanted to refresh and then also just sort of see what, what was going on to, you know, better be able to explain some of the things that happened in, within my lived experience. And and that's exactly what I found in, in the first course. And actually my first course, of course, was your course, as you know, but for our oh, listeners. Oh dear, not the baptism with Dr. Benton. That's a tough thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So what, um, what stood also, out you know, to you from that, from, from that course? Well, a lot of things, but really... You know, as we talked about, the big the big thing that stood out was was Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, the book that I read in your class as a young black man in, in the white space wearing, you know, khaki shorts and, and, and boat shoes, <laughs> reading Ta-Nehisi Coates for the first time, just having my, just feeling like, you know, he's writing this letter to his son, just feeling like I'm his son. And I'm just like reading this letter, like, you know what, Dad, you're right. <laughs> I need to stop doing it. I need to so when he let said, people go. When he said, here is what I would like for you to know. In America, it is traditional to destroy the black body. It is heritage. You felt that in your soul? I was like, Dad, like, why are you talking to me right now? And actually, actually, if you don't mind, I actually had a, I looked back at the book that I that I had. I still had some 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 pages marked. And I had this highlighted part that I was going to read, if you didn't mind. No, go ahead. He said... When I look back, I know that it was then getting the message from all over. By that time, my friends included a great number of people with ties to different worlds. Make the race proud, the elders used to say. But by then, I knew that I wasn't so much bound to a biological, quote-unquote, race as to a group of people, as these people were not Black because of any uniform color or any uniform physical feature. They were bound because they suffered under the weight of the dream and they were bound by all the beautiful things, all the language and mannerisms of the food and music and the literature and philosophy, all the common language that fashioned like diamonds under the weight of the dream. Not long ago, I was standing at an airport retrieving a bag from a conveyor belt. I bumped into a young black man and said, my bad, without even looking up. He said, you straight. And in that exchange, there was so much more of the private rapport that can only exist within two particular strangers of this tribe that we call Black. In other words, I was part of a world. And looking out, I had friends who too were part of other worlds, the world of Jews or New Yorkers, the world of Southerners or gay men, of immigrants, of Californians, of Native Americans, of a combination of any of these worlds stitched into, into worlds like, ta like tapestry. And though I could never myself be a native of any of these worlds, I knew that something so essentialist as race stood between us. And I saw that what divided me from the world was not anything intrinsic to us, but the actual injury done by people intent on naming us, intent on believing that what they have named us matters more than anything we could ever actually do. In America, the injury is not being born with darker skin, with fuller lips, with a broader nose, but in everything that happens after, in that single exchange with that young man, I was speaking the personal language of my people. It was the briefest intimacy, but it captured much of the beauty of my black world. The ease between your mother and me, the miracle at the Mecca, the way I feel myself disappear on the streets of Harlem. To call that feeling racial is to hand over all those diamonds fashioned by our ancestors to the plunder. We made that feeling. Though it was forged in the shadow of the murdered, the raped, the disembodied, we made it all the same. This is the thing that I have seen with my own eyes, and I think I needed this vantage point before I could journey out. I think I needed to know that I was from somewhere, that my home was as beautiful as any other. And I have that entire section highlighted in my book because when I read that, I was just like, you are from somewhere. 
and it really did change my life. You could feel the force of James Baldwin and the fire next time in there and the sensuality Absolutely. of, you know, the force of life, of black life and, you know, being present in that moment and, you know, and, and finding the intimacy and all, of all these things, right? Um, Absolutely. Um, because, as you know, he took the the title from that book from, from Baldwin, where Baldwin says, all the fears with which I'd grown up and which were now a part of me and controlled my vision of the world rose up like a wall between the world and me. Discipline is produced by Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore. The podcast is a collaboration between KUAF and the University of Arkansas Department of African and African American Studies. You can hear the rest of this conversation as well as every episode of Undisciplined wherever you already get your podcasts. KUAF is supported by Arsegas, a family-owned and operated coffee roastery with five cafes in downtown and South Fayetteville, including the cafe inside the U of A Law Library, giving campus dwellers and visitors access to local coffee. KUAF is supported by Lyle Lovett and his acoustic group, coming to Fort Smith on March 22nd at Arc Best Performing Arts Center and Eureka Springs March 23rd at the Auditorium. Tickets go on sale this Friday morning at 10 a.m. LyleLoveIt.com for tickets and more information. Support for KUAF comes from the Walmart Museum, open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 8, and noon to 6 on Sunday on the Square in Bentonville. WalmartMuseum.com for more information. Ahead on this edition of Ozarks at Large, the first 10 years of Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville. It was 10 years ago this month the museum opened, and yesterday, we sat down with the deputy director of the museum, Jill Wager, to reflect on the first decade and talk just a little bit about the next 10 years. That's in just a couple of minutes on our show. Speaking of memories, thinking about Crystal Bridge's opening and our live broadcast of Ozarks at Large from Bentonville that day has some of us at the show thinking about other live broadcasts we've done, including live shows from the Fayetteville Public Library as part of past Fayetteville Roots Festivals. Our very first live show in that series was opened by the band Steel Wheels. And the band has just released its newest record, Everyone a Song, Volume 2. It takes time. The band's chief songwriter, Trent Wagler, says he spent part of the pandemic crowdsourcing personal experiences of fans and using those stories as inspirations for songs. The new CD, Everyone a Song, Volume 2, from Steel Wheels, two-time live performers on Ozarks at Large, can be found wherever you look for music. And stay tuned. We promise we're going to have more live broadcasts in the future beginning in 2022. We're going to figure that out and hope you can be part of it. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Scott Tong. Oil and gas companies have long been criticized for exploitation of people in the developing world. But a new report finds that renewable energy companies have their own issues with human rights violations, and that includes land rights disputes with native peoples in Chile, Ecuador, and elsewhere. That's next time on Here and Now. Here and Now, today from 1 to 3 on KUAF, you can listen to us anytime, anywhere with the KUAF app. Hi, Kyle. Jill Wager, Deputy Director of Crystal Bridges. And we are here in the lobby of the museum on a Tuesday, the day that we're closed to the public. Many wonder if we're here working, and I will tell you, it is a very busy place on Tuesday getting ready for our guests. One of the perks of this job is 
spending an afternoon in Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville when it's closed to the public. A tour of the new temporary exhibition, In American Waters, The Sea in American Painting, was part of the visit yesterday, and you'll hear that private tour soon on Ozarks at Large. For today, we think about the 10 years and six days that the museum has been open. On November 11, 2011, Jill Wager spent time with Ozarks at Large during our live coverage of the museum's opening. She walked with us from the Bentonville Square down the art trail toward the museum. Yesterday, we sat across from each other in the newly enclosed and renovated Pamela and Wayne Garrison Family Foundation lobby to consider the first 10 years of the museum. Jill says a common question asked on that opening day, and we asked it, was how many guests do you expect to visit the museum? And there was no benchmark for what we were doing here in Bentonville, so the answer was usually approximately 200,000, give or take. But we have consistently had over 700,000 guests a year, every year. Right now, we have welcomed 5.6 million guests and counting. So to say that we needed an expanded lobby is an understatement, and the guest flow through this space is so much better and increases the guest experience. All right, so more than 5 million visitors. This is a bizarre question. Any idea between permanent, permanent not on display right now, and guest or temporary exhibitions, how many pieces of art have been through the museum or on the grounds? I don't know the answer to that. What I can tell you is that since we've opened our doors, we have added 3,500 works to our collection. And this brings me to something that I heard that day, 11-11-11, when someone, a local, was impressed with the opening and was on, they hadn't been inside yet, and they said, but you know what? Once it's open, who's going to come back to a museum a second time? It, with the idea that it would be static. There's one thing that Crystal Bridges has not been, and that is static. You know, it's funny you say that. Every single time I go in the galleries, which is often, I see something new. We've moved something, and the placement of artworks is telling a new story of American art. Our curators are so brilliant in that space. Or there's a new acquisition or a new loan. Um, we continually make um, the galleries fresh. When... We opened um, after the first year, because the first year everyone's new to the museum, we began to measure how many repeat guests we had coming to the museum as compared to uh, first-time guests. And it, the, the split was about 50-50, 50 first-time, 50 repeat. And one might expect that over a period of time that that ratio would significantly change. Do you know that it hasn't? Mm. We still have about 50% of our guests are new and about 50% of our guests are returning. And it speaks to the impact that Crystal Bridges is making on a national level, driving more and more people here. About uh, 60% of our guests come from Arkansas. Uh, 20% come from kind of a broader region um, here in the heartland and then 20 from national and international markets. Of course, I think a lot of people when they hear Art museum, they think two-dimensional or three-dimensional, you know, paintings, sculpture. But for the decade, it has been film, it has been music, it has been lecture, it has been uh, events. That's absolutely right. And Crystal Bridges strives to be a community center. And we've really emphasized that in the last couple years. And we want everyone, no matter of their background or their experience in art, to come here and feel welcome. And have a sense of belonging in the space. And so we know that there are different types of experiences that attract different, everyone, different audiences. Everyone has a different uh, passion. And we are trying to really expand what is, what is art? What is an art museum? For us, it's a community center and it's a place of belonging. Um, do you know that in the 10 years that we've been here, we've had 80 exhibitions travel through um, the space and everyone has their favorite exhibition. And Kyle, I want to ask you, what's been your favorite exhibition over these 10 years? It's an easy, not, not to say anything about the other 79, but it's an easy one for me, the most memorable and the one that was the most moving. And I think my favorite was Border Cantos. 
you know, I hear that a lot. Border Contas was an amazing exhibition. It examined the Mexican-American border and really humanized it and asked really important questions. Um, Border Contos was our first exhibition that we had fully translated in English and Spanish and really helped mark the start of a really important diversity and inclusion um, path that Crystal Bridges has been on since that time. I mean, you've seen the other exhibitions such as Art for a New Understanding, which explored contemporary Native American art. We've had Soul of a Nation, which was... Um, um, art in the Age of Black Power, and so many others. Hank Willis's Thomas, All Things Being Equal. And we have really um, wanted to emphasize those artists who have been underrepresented in American art and have been doing really tremendous work. Still border contos, but oh my gosh, Soul of the Nation was amazing. You're right. I mean, it started at uh, the Tate, um, and there was a great story that was told by Darren Walker of the Ford Foundation. He was talking about when he knew the Tate was organizing Soul of a Nation. They had been promoting that show to American museums to see who might pick that show up here to travel, and no one was interested. And he said... I know someone who I know is going to be interested. He picked up the phone and called it his friend Alice. Alice heard about the content of the show and said, absolutely send us the information. Our team quickly got together and said, we want the show. So Crystal Bridges was the U.S. debut. After it was on display here at Crystal Bridges, it traveled to several other places in the United States and became a huge blockbuster. Do you let yourself think about 10 years from today? You know, 10 years from today, uh, that is so hard to imagine because of what we've accomplished in 10 years uh, with Alice's vision here and with our community. As you know, we're expanding the museum. We have a 100,000 uh, square foot that will com be complete in around 2025. And you're going to see more stories of American art, especially in a Native American art and in craft art. And we're going to have it in campus here at the Whole Health Institute, which is a separate venture of Alice's will be on our campus um, and a medical school that she's announced. And so it's hard for me to imagine what this will be, but I know that it's going to be a thrilling ride. Jill Wager is the deputy director of Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville. Our conversation was recorded yesterday at the museum. We also toured the new temporary exhibit, American Waters, the Sea in American Painting, and we'll take you along on that private tour soon on an upcoming edition of Ozarks at Large. Oh, and before the conversation with Jill Wager ended yesterday in the lobby at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville, she reflected on one of her favorite memories of that opening day of November 11th, 2011, that involved the architect of Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, Moshe Softy. And it was late in the evening after a celebration, and we were closing up shop, and I was walking across 11, and uh, Moshe Softy was standing in the very middle of uh, one of the wall, the glass walls, looking out across the pond, had his hands in the po his pocket and was in a very contemplative state. And I thought, I'm not going to bother him. I'm going to very quietly walk past him. And he turned his head and he was wanting to visit with someone. And I stepped over and he was looking out. And as you will recall, you know, there's always these reflections that are magical at night. It's the glass off the lights, off the water and all of these refractions. And he said... I didn't know it was going to do this. He said, this is beautiful. And I had no idea. And that will all, I will always hold as a very special memory. On tomorrow's Ozarks at Large, nearly 20% of all waste collected by the city of Fayetteville is food waste. City officials want to encourage businesses to divert that waste into a more productive life cycle through composting instead of filling landfills. 
So in Fayetteville, we have a pay-as-you-throw program. The more you throw away, the more you pay. Um, but our food waste compost program for businesses is $15.05 a month for 12 monthly pickups. So that's about a dollar per pickup. And our hope is that by diverting their food waste from their trash can, they can save money on their trash bill um, because the cost of food waste collection is a fraction of the cost of trash. That story. From Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. You can always find past editions of Ozarks at Large as well as individual stories at ozarksatlarge.com. And you can always listen to us when you want on your schedule. If you download or subscribe to the free Ozarks at Large podcast, it's available through all major podcast distributors. Ranger's Pantry is a community service that helps families meet the needs of their pets during tough times. Throughout December, you can donate dog or cat food to local Northwest Arkansas families who may be struggling this holiday season to take care of their pets. Donations accepted from December 1st through December 31st. You can make those donations at the Fayetteville Public Library's Preschool Library. If you'd like to know more information, you can go online to fayylib.org. Speaking of December, the Single Parent Scholarship Fund will host Jingle Mingle on December 9th. This will take place in Springdale. It's their annual gathering, offering scholarship recipients and supporters a chance to mix and mingle to cap off the end of the year. Jingle Mingle also serves as a fundraiser for the Single Parent Scholarship Fund. You do have to reserve your spot by the end of this month, November 30th. If you'd like to know more, spsfnwa.org. Finally, the Riders Colony at Derry Hollow will host the Meet the Storymaker Book Fair Saturday, December 4th in the Highlander Room of the Eureka Springs Community Center. This event is free. It's from 10 until 2 on December 4th. It will feature adult, young adult, and children's books in a range of genres, and you get the chance to speak with the authors as well. 19 local and visiting authors will be on hand to sign books, deliver readings, just talk to you. You can learn more at writerscolony.org. Walton Arts Center's 10 by 10 Arts Series presents Cirque Mechanics Birdhouse Factory. Thursday, November 18th, trapeze artists, contortionists, acrobats, and unicyclists emerge in an unexpected setting for a circus, a factory. When a bird is injured in the factory, the workers take action and the show takes flight. WaltonArtsCenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets. KUAF is supported by Dog Party USA, offering supervised boarding and daycare in an off-leash environment for dogs of all sizes. Dog Party follows strict vaccine requirements and COVID guidelines for a safe environment. More information available at dogpartyusa.com. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Siloam Springs. 91.3 KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas and Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Thanks for being with us this Wednesday. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore produces Undiscipline, the podcast. That's a collaboration between the University of Arkansas Department of African and African American Studies, Ozarks at Large, and KUAF. You can hear the full, complete new episode as well as all the previous episodes by subscribing to Undiscipline through your preferred podcast distributor. And additional content today came from our friends in the KUAR newsroom, KUAR Public Radio for Central Arkansas and Little Rock. Timothy Dennis produced today's show inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Speaking of Timothy, he'll be with us on the show tomorrow. It's his regular Thursday session where he highlights the live music coming up for the next seven days. That's tomorrow at noon and seven. And speaking of music, you can listen to classical music from KUAF any day of the week, any time of that day. KUAF2 is a 24-7, around-the-clock classical music service that we make available to you for free. You can listen to it by turning on your HD radio and going to KUAF2. That's your HD radio either in your car or at home. You can tune in by going to KUAF.com and listening to the free live stream. You can also listen by downloading the free KUAF app for iPhone and iPad. It's available right now, that too free. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.